You are listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and here at the Cabin in the Woods, located somewhere in the wilds of West Cork in the south of Ireland, I investigate stories of the strange, always trying to remain critical, but hopefully never cynical. This episode, I think I'm going to call it Return to the Lost World, which is the name, as I recall, of a rather cheap uh, 90s film version of The Lost World, uh, which I saw as a kid. And I'm calling it that because I have done an episode previously about the, the Lost World. I call that one the prehistory of the Lost World. And it was a collection of everything I knew, or I thought I knew at the time, about the writing of the book and all of Arthur Conan Doyle's um, potential influences that might have gone into it. And I'm very delighted to bring you this episode because it brings a whole lot more to the story. There's a whole lot more stuff that I didn't know. This episode is my chat with Dr. Richard Fallon, uh, all about the Lost World, uh, its creation, and kind of Lost World literature in general. Uh, Dr. Richard Fallon has written publications such as Reimagining Dinosaurs in Late Victorian and Edwardian Literature, uh, an article called Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World, Illustrating the Romance of Science, and he has also edited an anthology of kind of Victorian-era paleo-creature cryptozoology-type stories called Creatures of Another Age, Classic Visions of Prehistoric Monsters. I rather think that any of those would be of interest to uh, the folks who listen to this show. Um, it certainly got my attention, and I'm very, very pleased that I got to chat with him about this topic. As you know, I'm a huge Lost World fan, and uh, any, any extra information I can get on the creation uh, or, or the impact of that novel is a great thing for me. So you can reach out over on Twitter if you want to comment. I am at Strange Ireland or on Instagram where I am Irish underscore cryptid underscore dude. And you can always help the show out over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide Atlantic. See, I didn't forget the dot com that time. I'm pretty sure I did it last time. A uh, couple of small things before we get into the interview, mostly linked to our previous episode, which was all about, it was my chat with Dr. Edward Dumont about 1950s flying saucer movies. So we talked about the day the earth stood still and we talked about the thing from another world. And uh, you won't know this because of the magic of editing, but I made some mistakes and I cut them out of the episode. That does happen sometimes. Um, but I was chatting to Eddie about them and some... Some things link up in, in a kind of a neat way, which I liked, so I'll just mention them briefly. So one bit of audio that I cut is where my brain always mixes up the actor's Michael Rennie, who's in The Day the Earth Stood Still, with the actor Claude Rains, who's in Casablanca. Uh, they're completely different people. I don't know why my brain does this. But when I was telling Eddie that I cut this bit out, um, uh, we realised, of course, both of them starred in uh, the 1960 version of The Lost World. Uh, that's the Irwin Allen one. I'd forgotten this. So I, I remember that Michael Rennie plays Professor... Claude Rains, sorry, plays Professor Challenger. And then Eddie reminded me that, of course, um, opposite him is none other than Michael Rennie playing uh, kind of a slightly too old, I think, uh, Professor John Rocks or L Lord John Roxton. So nice, nice link to this episode. Bit of a Lost World connection there as well. Also, on that episode, you may remember... Um, Edward talked about the the writer Leigh Brackett, who was a kind of a pulp writer from back of the day, a pulp science fiction writer from back of the day, who eventually contributed and wrote part of the script for The Empire Strikes Back. And in some of the cut audio, I was wondering if she's the one who wrote the Northwest Smith stories. They're kind of like old solar system, early kind of 1940s pulp science fiction stuff. I was wrong, of course. Um, it wasn't Leigh Brackett who wrote those stories. It was C.L. Moore, 
So I mentioned this to Eddie and he reminded me that, of course, C.L. Moore not only knew Lovecraft, which is a frequent topic of this show, um, but her husband was Kuttner, also a space opera writer in his own right, uh, another correspondent of Lovecraft. And in fact, Lovecraft was the one who suggested that they meet and so acted as a bit of a matchmaker in that case. And not only that, but both Moore and Kuttner um, Eddie said, were part of Robert Heinlein's literary circle in Los Angeles at the time and that they probably knew Lay Brackett as well. So maybe my, I, I'm not going to pretend I knew that <laughs> before he told me I didn't, but somehow my brain made those connections without even knowing. Wow, that's how it is. Okay, that's enough 1930s pulp stuff. This episode is all about turn of the century, explorers, dinosaurs, paleo critters, all that good stuff. Hope you enjoy it, folks. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Hi, I'm Richard Fallon. I'm um, a researcher at the University of Birmingham. I work on kind of literature and paleontology, literature and geology in the 19th and early 20th centuries, um, particularly a recent book I brought out called Reimagining Dinosaurs in, in Late Victorian Edwardian Literature. I'm currently working on issues more relating to kind of creationism uh, and occult, occult paleontology in the same period. <laughs> I think it, it, it won't take long for folks to realize why I've asked you to come on because this is all, all stuff that I love. Um, so yeah, reimagining dinosaurs. Um, I, I've, I've got a copy here in front of me of your recent book, Creatures of Another Age, mm. where you edit um, a whole a lot of kind of long, long Victorian century. Um, yeah, yeah. There's no good word, is there really? Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, um, so an anthology of um, poems and um, short stories, kind of non-fiction and, and non-fiction that blends into fiction about paleontology from about 1830 to 1910s. Yeah, it's great stuff here. There's, there's a few classics and then there's some other ones I'd never heard of before and really have changed my thinking a little bit on, you know, the history of these ideas. And I, I'm interested in how there's back and forth between fact and fiction with this stuff and how, you know, there are cases where, you know, real dinosaurs, living dinosaurs are reported by the early 20th century, mm. feeds into, you know, humans and cryptozoology later. Um, and then what some of those inspirations would have been, which were out and out fiction, and how blurry the line gets uh, occasionally. Uh, and in particular, I, I, I was really knocked out by your, um, a piece you wrote called Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World, illustrating the romance of science, because I'm really taken with the Lost World genre and that book in particular. And I thought I knew a few things about the inspiration behind it. And I learned a whole lot more from, from this article. Yeah, I mean, that was inspired by, there's a book um, you may have come across, um, The Annotated Lost World, which came out in 1996. It's quite expensive now, but that's the first um, book I encountered, uh, the only book, as far as I could see, that discussed the, um, the Conan Doyle items at the Berg Public Library, uh, sorry, the New York Public Library's Berg Collection, which has the manuscript of the Lost World, which is actually now in a, now printed in a, a French edition, so it's expensive but accessible, but also a lot of material about the composition of the Lost World, so the kind of fake photos that accompany the novel, aspects of those photos are in the collection, letters about them, a false moustache, which um, the photographer wore in order to impersonate the protagonist, Malone, is in there. And these hadn't really, but the annotated Lost will discuss these items a little bit and gave, basically gave the indication I went with in the article, which is that the illustrator Conan Doyle um, was working with P.L. Forbes, his brother-in-law, 
was much more important than had been previously recognized. There's various illustrators to the lost world, as you know. So there's Forbes, who did Conan Doyle's personalized illustrations. There's um, uh, Harry Roundtree, who did the illustrations in Strand Magazine, the British publication, the serialization. And there's um, Joseph Clement Cole, who did the US ones. Uh, and Forbes is really only appeared for the, in full in the book versions, the early book versions. But I, I kind of got the impression for these letters that Conan Doyle was much more interested in Forbes's vision than um, Roundtree and Cole, despite the fact that no one since has cared about Forbes's illustrations. And I think they need they need um, additional explanation as to why they're interesting because they don't. I don't think it's obvious in all of them, apart from the Pterodactyls one, which I think is is kind of instinctively quite cool. The others are have a kind of naivety to them, which is partially intentional, partially not. Yeah, I, I suppose um, just being an enthusiast of the book throughout the years, whenever I've seen um, images from the original printings, the ones that were always shown were the Roundtree ones, which I think some listeners will recognize if you if you are a long term fan of The Lost World and you've ever you know searched for the original illustrations, those are inevitably usually the ones you find and they are they're dramatic. The, the monsters are front and center. Um, it, it is very it's slightly over the top, a little bit, a little bit horror influence, perhaps. Um, but they are dramatic. They are memorable. Um, I, I do like them, but I, I, re, I, I really enjoyed the comparison you made in the in the piece between the two styles, the two artists. And I was in, intrigued to find out that Conan Doyle um, had had other plans for how he wanted this uh, story to be presented. Yeah, as you say, the, the, the Roundtree ones are great. They're kind of they're illustrations in the sense that they're not supposed to be views of a character or of a camera or anything. The contrast with those and Forbes's illustrations and also the fake photos the novel came with is obviously that all that Conan Doyle kind of convened was um, were folk, fake documents, fake illustrations, fake sketches, photos. And so everything in the book, and in the same way the book is a first person narrative, is presented more or less as real. Obviously, it's a bit undermined by the fact that it always had Arthur Conan Doyle as the author in the serialization and in the book. But um, in the versions which Conan Doyle had the most control over, the English or the British first edition and the deluxe edition, which is like his director's cut, that is the closest to what he first imagined, I think, um, because he had basically more oversight over it. And effectively, the book can be read as a, a found document um, or a journalistic kind of expose. And so Forbes' illustrations you know, always supposed to be seen from the eye of a character, um, the eye of a camera. Uh, it gets a bit confused <laughs> um, as, as the letters kind of explain in that Forbes was first, so there's the fake photos, the most famous aspect of it. Forbes' sketches, it seems Conan Doyle wanted him to sketch photorealistically at first, or at least that was a very early idea. So the pterodactyl swamp image, a swamp for pterodactyls, which you can easily find by Googling, I think, um, he thought it was so convincing he might be able to gloss it, glaze it, and make it look like a photo. Um, he gave up on that idea relatively soon, and they decided that the images would be presented in the book as sketches by Malone, the protagonist, kind of jazzed up by Forbes, who is whose role in the, the universe of the Lost World is not explained, but um, presumably he's a character who exists in the same world as Malone, but when in fact he's, he's Conan Doyle's um, artist brother-in-law. He was an, a local artist. He's painted a lot of Hampstead. He specialised in landscapes. He had, um, you know, a relatively kind of um, a, a growing career in the early Edwardian period, but I think he was a bit down on his luck by the time of the Lost World, and so Conan Doyle's um, offer, offered him, which effectively was to have his illustrations put in the best-selling, you know, adventure magazine at the time, uh, would have been an amazing opportunity, which was mostly removed, most of the 
Forbes illustrations were not published in a Strand magazine. Conan Doyle's editor, Herbert Greener Smith, seems to have thought they were a bit amateurish. No, the letters don't all survive, so we don't have a great idea as to what exactly he said, um, but it seems to have been the idea. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and just for the like two people out there who, who need a bit of context, sure, um, sure. The Lost World, obviously, obviously Conan Doyle, most known for Sherlock Holmes, experimented with a lot of other things during his career, and um, he has this character called Professor Challenger, who he is, is in several of his books, and this is the first one in 1912, and it is about an expedition to a place in South America where dinosaurs still exist. So um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about one thing I gleaned from, from the piece was the kind of amount of effort and seriousness which Doyle put into this book and the presentation of it. He really seemed to care about how it was put out there, and it's it's funny to me because in one way um, it is rather a juvenile piece, and and um, as a piece of maybe imperial fiction, which you know is in some ways and kind of inherently juvenile genre. I always have this kind of stereotype that you know th these were intended for young boys to read in the in the prep schools before they went out to rule the empire. You know they were given these um, sort of heroic tales where young men usually would come up against um, you know danger in exotic places and and the the type of lost world stories are like a subgenre of that so there is something inherently juvenile about it arguably and Doyle even got even says as much in the opening on the opening poem that he uses um but and yet to find out that he cared so much about this that it was not a trivial project to him I mean it's part of the, the kind of branding of these novels that um they're for kind of, yeah, as, as the, the Lost World's epigraph says, for the, the boy who's half a man and the man who's half a boy. This is part of what made these novels so so successful is that, you know, event, imperialistic adventures have existed for quite a long time. It's generally attributed to people like H. Ryder Haggard and Robert Louis Stevenson in the 1880s for kind of writing more sophisticated ones and, and kind of keeping that young boy audience, but also getting an adult audience um, by having a story where kind of you're, you're suspending your disbelief and you're kind of, you're, your appealing to your inner child was was the idea behind it, and the Lost World is in many ways a late contribution to that that um, tradition, which I think part of the novel um, has a kind of slightly vintage um, chain to it, and it's slightly self conscious of the fact that it's already an old fashioned kind of genre by 1912. Um, Ryder Haggard obviously been writing things like that for decades, King Solomon's Mines, and She being his most famous ones. There's a lot of Haggard in there, uh, and Conan Doyle has been wanting to write a Haggard style kind of imperial adventure for, for decades and he didn't seem to have got around to it until until the lost world just thinking again about what this might have meant to him and how whether it was an important book or not and um, so the, the amount of effort he put into those fake photographs so the four main characters of the book as you said this is all presented in this kind of full journalistic style as if and, and pre presented as if it was really happening um, and and so you have professor challenger you have lord john roxton you have He's, and he's the, like the, the great white hunter sort of character or the, the British sportsman hunter. And then you have the young journalist who's Malone. And then you have the, the older scientist, uh, Summerlee. And they're all acted out by Doyle and his, his entourage in, the, in these fake photographs as part of the, the, the fake journalistic stuff. The side note on Roxton, not very exciting, but um, one of the big changes in the manuscript is Conan Doyle seems to have gone back and made Broxton more interesting. <laughs> Must have realized at some point that he was quite boring. He was he was quite different. He was a, a he was a bald man. There's not much else to him really. He was his speech had none of the mannerisms Conan Doyle. He added a kind of what what kind of um, 
dialect to, to um, the character afterwards. You must have realized he wasn't quite as vivid as the other characters. Mm. Um, but as for, yes, you say the kind of, the precision Conan Doyle has for these things is really quite specific. He asked for redraft after redraft or whatever you do for a, an image or a photograph. So there's photographs of the characters. He goes back and says, Summerlee's face needs to be less smiling. He says, it's kind of implied that, whereas in the final version, he is Professor Challenger in the, in the photos, it's kind of implied that someone else was at first. I, I read this, this line in this letter and it's hard to say if he's, he's joking. The joke is that actually I'm Professor Challenger. I don't think that's the case, given Conan Doyle's sense of humor is not, doesn't seem to be there in the letter. Um, but he has various kind of shoots of these photos taken and a lot of the versions in the Berg are not in the final book. I don't really know kind of whether they use publicity. And his letters to Forbes are very extensive. So he says, for example, um, there's pteranodons in the sky in the pterodactyl swamp. And he says to Forbes, actually, can you paint those out because they add a bit too much. They're a bit too definite. We need a bit more ambiguity. Um, and yes, he keeps basically keeps going back and forth to get exactly what he wants, which isn't necessarily clear from the photos, which have a kind of spontaneity to them, um, but mm. actually they're reworked and, and they're absolutely to his specifications. I mean, the most striking item in the Berg for me is the photograph he used as a draft for encouraging Forbes to draw the central lake location of a novel where the ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs uh, live. It's kind of a symbol of kind of romance and mystery in the novel. And um, Conan Doyle sent Forbes lots of sample pages, sample pages from various kind of photographic um, images of, of swamps and jungles, and also um, cut out pages from a, a popular book, Extinct Animals, uh, how, to, how to Draw the Dinosaurs. And for the, the central lake, he sent a photo of Arctic water, kind of shining Arctic water and scribbled on very indistinct plesiosaur necks in a manner that looks just like kind of later Loch Ness monster photos where you can just about see, even though of course this is decades before um, that became a trend and, and no one could have really seen this image as far as I'm aware. Um, the final image of, of that that Forbes made from it is much less suggestive. You know, Conan Doyle was very proud of it and very pleased with it. Um, and in a letter to the editor of a strand compares it favorably to uh, round trees one which he calls an aquarium because it's stuffed with you know there's a crocodile lunging at the screen the turtle flying out and a plesiosaur and the protagonists are in the background whereas Forbes image is like you are the uh, the eye of the camera looking out into yeah. this kind of misty lake where there's just kind of glimpses of plesiosaurs which gets in some measure the um, the the power of the little sketch he sent to Forbes. I get the feeling that he not only wanted them to feel more realistic as if this was actually taken um, by, you know, by somebody who was really there, but they just weren't that close. Um, but mm. for, for realism, but also for subtlety, as if he didn't want to overwhelm yeah, yeah. The, the viewer or the reader with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is his constant refrain to the editor of a strand. Stop spoiling my endings with frontispieces that give away the murderer, which for a start. But also he does have various letters where he says, you know, can you present a slightly more, I guess, symbolic or, or, or blurred kind of version of what's happening rather than just kind of what the Strand illustrators presumably were told to do by the editor, which is to draw what is on the page in, in the most exciting manner. And Doyle is, is very much against this strategy, although even though he's one of the best, best paid writers you know, in the world, he doesn't seem to have had much power to change it, uh, as evidenced by the fact that the lost world is kind of completely changed in serialization and his images are lost. He clearly didn't have the leverage um, to, to change that. But his, his, his preference was for images which were not necessarily precise depictions of what's happening, but were more about um, obscurity uh, and mystery. 
made me think a little bit of somewhere here. I have a, bo a book about the work, the art work of Willis O'Brien, who obviously oh, yeah. effects guy who went on to do the, the stop motion animation for the 1925 film version. But um, if you've seen his his actual artwork, um, he, he, I mean, yes, he does creatures that are in your face, but what he does, he also does a fine line in these very mysterious jungle pictures where it's very kind of Gustave Doré influenced, and he, he's he's going for this kind of. It's a it's a place where okay you don't see any creatures right now but anything could be in there you know there's mm -hmm. that subtlety. I mean so, Conan Doyle was even um, clearly impressed enough by the animatronics in the Lost World 1922 or 22 was when I guess he first showed them. And he gives up his idea of ambiguity and mystery, doesn't he? And he's like, oh my god, you can actually have model <laughs> dinosaurs, and so he clearly accepts that to a certain extent spectacle um, it has its value um, <laughs> for the film anyway. So are you, I think you wrote that um, he was so taken with the Professor Challenger costume, the big bushy beard, and that he he, he walked around London like calling on, into his friends to see if he could confuse them. I mean, this is an anecdote you see a lot, but it's one of those ones where it's hard to trace, hard to trace exactly what happened. And, you know, you often see in old you know, books from the 50s or 60s, there's no citation. They just say Conan Doyle showed up to his, to his, his what, his brother the guy who wrote the raffle stories who was a brother-in-law or something and kind of uh, pissed him off by tricking him into thinking he was a visiting professor i mean it is a good story but i just you don't have much in the way of sources for it um although he's pretty convincing looking in the photos um and i would like to know where the challenger beard went <laughs> <laughs> i wonder if it's in a museum somewhere everybody oh, always so. mentions that uh, brian, brian blessed of course would have been the great the great loss uh, yeah yeah I'd like to know where the Forbes paintings are because Forbes has lots and lots of his relatively boring landscapes um, exist in the Hampstead Museum. So there's actually a lot of Forbes stuff that survives, but where the heck his paintings for the Lost World went, um, I do not know, and it's unlikely they survive. But occasionally you'll find amazing Edwardian paleontology memorabilia on auction sites going for £10,000. So maybe they'll re-emerge. Um, but uh, I suppose it without more information about it, they, they don't have a visual strike to them. So perhaps they might have been kind of thrown away by someone who said, why did someone let dead child's dinosaur picture linger in the loft or whatever? <laughs> Talking about um, The Lost World being uh, like already a fairly well-trade kind of genre by 1912. Um, and as you say, there's a certain amount of self-acknowledgement there. Um, during your kind of research for Creatures of Another Age, where you presumably had to go through, you went through loads and loads of um, Victorian and Edwardian era fiction that uses paleo creatures. Um, did it give you any sense of um, the Lost World's place in the history of this? And do you, like to me personally, it's a kind of a it's, it's a bit of a climax almost because it, it it must have been the one with the most far-reaching consequences. But this genre already had a, a format that was that was built being built on earlier. Yeah, I mean, like you say, it, it does have a certain level of of climax to it in that there's. There's plenty of fiction about dinosaurs developing from the late 19th century. Not much in the way of novels. There's Swallowed by an Earthquake, which is, I guess, really the kind of major pre, well, obviously, apart from Journey Through Centre of the Earth, which is kind of, I suppose, really the, the centre of, of most of these kind of stories. Swallowed by an Earthquake in 1894 or 5 by um, Edward Fawcett, which is effectively the Lost World plot. Um, although you get the difference between Arthur Conan Doyle's abilities as a writer versus Fawcett's when you read this, and that Fawcett's novel is kind of very repetitive and um, has quite good illustrations, but it's constantly saying everything is so romantic. This is romantic. It's romantic. It's kind of not got much of a sense of humour or kind of um, the mock verisimilitude that The Lost World has. Um, and obviously very short stories, but kind of with various cryptozoological themes. Um, 
I think Conan Doyle kind of gave a, a certain stamp of quality. I mean, one of the major relatively successful Lost World novels with paleontology at the centre is Beyond the Great South Wall, which is published in 1899 about a carnivorous hypnotic brontosaurus surviving yeah. at the South Pole, which gets some, um, you know, it gets a, an American edition. It's a British author, Frank Saville, gets an American edition that seems to have been relatively successful. But, you know, these aren't kind of publishing a book, a novel with spectacular dinosaur scenes was not a kind of guaranteed moneymaker um, in the 19th century or even kind of the early 20th. It's not a you know, Jurassic Park kind of thing where you dinosaurs and you'll get kind of people clamoring at your door um so conan doyle's i guess brought a certain level of prestige to the genre that that wasn't necessarily there before in fiction obviously non-fiction books on dinosaurs have always been or paleontology have always been very popular and uh, i guess some, to a certain extent literarily their their techniques are more interesting often um in the 19th century than the fiction which is just barely stock i mean the story in creatures of another day's the last dragon where uh, a, a guy recounts it's a kind of classic Fireside's the story where a guy says, you know, I, I fought the last dragon in Africa and it's clearly supposed to be a kind of plesiosaur or something. And it's, you know, it's it's bare, pretty bare bones. <laughs> it's interesting for its its um, historical um, date, but it's not got the flair of the lost world or the ambition or the illustrations or the kind of um, humour and interesting uh, characterization. Mm. I have a book somewhere called um, a, a Manuscript Found in a Copper Silver. Mm. Again, like a lot of novels in the 19th century, it's not interested in the dinosaurs as much as it would be if it were published now. It's kind of, it shows that really that was not the draw necessarily. It's a kind of utopia, isn't it? Yes. And that's a sort of tradition which is, or a dystopia, kind of related to, but not parallel 100% with the Lost World tradition, mm -hmm. which I guess is, when we think of Ryder Haggard's 1880s novels, those kind of basically cut out most of the utopian kind of cultural satire and things make it more about the adventure finding the lost world or the lost treasure or the lost race and you lose what had traditionally been I guess so fundamental to kind of adventure novels which is someone goes to a society where you know they're all communist or they live upside down or they yeah. they awake at night and sleep in the day or something like that and it'll be kind of not 100% intended to be very similitudinous but it'll be about kind of making you think um, and uh, the dinosaurs in a strange manuscript found in the copper cylinder, which is a fantastic title, um, are just kind of representative, I guess, of the kind of backwards, strange society that uh, is existing in, I think, what is it, an oasis in the pole, one of the poles? Yeah. <laughs> or, or I can't remember, it might have been a Hollow Earth um, sort of a scenario, but they go into some it's, kind it's of... It's a depression, isn't it? It's a polar yeah. depression where it's kind of warmer. I mean, that is an interesting novel because, as you know, it, it goes between the, the, the manuscript, the title, and kind of a bunch of gentlemen on a boat reading it and yes. kind of taking the piss out of it and kind of yes. suggesting it's fake or it's badly written or whatever. So it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting novel. Um, it's definitely more like a yeah. Swiftian satire. Like. Yes, it definitely is. That's definitely, those, these kind of things all have a certain level of Gulliver's Travels to them, even if some of them go for more um, realism. Um, but the kind of Gulliver's Travels aspect is always dropped. Um, by the novels that I guess have become what we now think of as kind of adventure adventure novels. So the the last world finishes and spoilers for people, but there's a famous scene <laughs> at the end where a um it's, it's a pterodactyl, isn't it? Makes it um is, is mm -hmm. let loose in London. And I was just struck reading uh, your book Creatures of Another Age. There is a, that was not the first literary London pterodactyl. Yeah, there's a story which is published in the Ludgate Monthly, um, a magazine a bit like The Strand, which published The Lost World and, and the Sherlock Holmes stories. Um, I forget the names of the authors, Ranger Gull and um, 
Bacchus. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was Bacchus, a pornographer, yeah. Bacchus, I think. <laughs> he sounds like erotic literature. And Cyril Ranger Gull. That's it. They were both kind of relatively prolific early 20th century authors um, of, of wide, wide-ranging literary abilities. And uh, it's, a, it's a short story about a, a frozen pterodactyl, which never exactly explicitly since pterodactyl, but it's a, it's a dragon described as a prehistoric creature compared to a snark and a boodrum from Lewis Carroll's Hunting of the Snark. Um, and it's more or less described to be a, a giant pterodactyl. It's defrosted. It kills one of the protagonist's friends. Protagonists are kind of dodgy journalists who don't care much about fact and fiction, which is sort of the main theme of the story. And then the novel, in a kind of mock reportage way, follows as this dragon flies around uh, London, goes to Crystal Palace, which is symbolic, of course, there's Victorian um, paleontological models there. It kind of murders people in quite gruesome ways. Um, which you're starting to be able to do more so in the late 19th century. It's more like our kind of, you know, modern, a, a, a sleazy 80s novel about dinosaurs murdering people. It's got a kind of aspects of that. Um, and then it's eventually kind of shot down. It's cornered in St. Paul's where it kind of tries to hide. Um, and it's a novel that becomes increasingly less interesting, story, story even becomes increasingly less interesting as it goes along as it kind of, it loses the kind of interesting ambiguities about fact and fiction where kind of fact fiction is becoming reality or reality stranger than fiction it just becomes a kind of a bit like a, a modern action movie they just have a big shootout at the end it goes on for too long um but yes it's certainly long before the, the pterodactyl at the end of the lost world flies out of the queen's hall yeah it's astonishing stuff and i'm always interested in the again the interplay between fact and fiction when it comes to cryptozoology and i i frequently on, on the show like um mentioned the lost world as a bit of a lodestone and like so sometimes this is quite blunt among cryptozoologists bernard huvelman's uh, opens his book with the, or, uh, the chapter called it, it is at the beginning of the chapter called there are lost worlds everywhere and he, he returns to the he was clearly very influenced by by conan doyle and um, so i was interested to find in creatures of another age a slightly earlier strand of this kind of thinking where you have at least one story um, overtly about some kind of dinosaur or, or plesiosaur in, in the sort of central West Africa, um, which is from 1871. That's the last dragon. You mentioned it. Mm. And then you have, you know, the, the famous um, Carl Hagenbach stories about dinosaurs in central Africa by, I think, 1909. And then you write that a, a late, you know, later stories in this book are probably influenced by that. We have the beginnings of what we now call the Mokila Mbembe story. So... Yes, that, that's definitely there in Clotilde Graves' story, isn't it? which is 1917. That's clearly uh, following from Hagenbeck 1909, kind of catalyst for all these stories. Um, what exactly catalyzed the 1871 story? I don't quite know. It's actually a bit of an outlier, really, because it's not really... I mean, this is obviously early days of evolution being accepted. I, I tend to think that cryptozoology becomes slightly more legitimate in the public eye and in the scientific community in the late 19th, early 20th century, when there's a couple of... Um, relatively um, convincing stories. I'm sure you're familiar with the, the Patagonian Mylodon, which is um, purportedly out there in late 1890s. And there's a serious kind of scientific confidence in the Naturalist Museum in London that a, a giant ground sloth could survive in Patagonia. Uh, and this, of course, becomes part of the um, a media circus when the Daily Express's um, owner sends a, uh, an expedition to try and find this Mylodon uh, and doesn't really find much. So by the Edwardian period, that, that is kind of petering out. Um, but the fact that it was in, at least tentatively, you know, endorsed by people like E. Ray Lancaster, the director of the Natural History Museum, and Arthur Smith Woodward, uh, kind of famous for the Piltdown Man fraud, but obviously a, basically one of Britain's leading paleo paleontologists, um, it's starting to become something that has 
credibility, whereas in the 19th century, Richard Darwin had really pushed against the idea that sea serpents existed, though they were, if they did, that they were plesiosaurs. It was not particularly kind of something that um, had much credence in the scientific community. Early 20th century, there's, you know, there's the Okapi has recently been on, um, kind of brought to the West. Um, the kind of interest in the gorilla in the 19th century is bringing the idea that giant kind of animals could possibly be out there, particularly in places like Africa and South America, which have a kind of traditional connotation with atavism, uh, which is always played up in stories like Michaela Membi. Um, and uh, Conan Doyle obviously is building on this area of probability. And um, well, for him, if we're to take what he says later, um, he really has strong reasons to believe that uh, these stories were, um, the, the, the large prehistoric animals could survive. So he was, he reported much later that he still thought the Mylodon was out there, but he also reported that in 1907, I believe, certainly he, he's, he says it's when he was with his wife off the island of Aegina, which seems to imply it's his honeymoon, which is 1907 with his second wife, Jean. Uh, he claims to have seen what he first calls an ichthyosaurus, but he later calls plesiosaurus. And he describes this in various ways from 1922 on to the end of his life. Um, he writes in the Daily Express in 1928 that he saw a plesiosaurus, um, which is kind of, he, he gains new confidence when a new fossil plesiosaurus is discovered. He says it was just like that. Um, which, of course, in the timeline means that Cronin Doyle believed he'd seen a plesiosaurus relatively soon before writing The Lost World, three years before he started to plan The Lost World, which plays interestingly into um, the blurring of fact of fiction, which The Lost World deliberately does, um, which later challenges stories kind of do it in an even more bombastic way uh, and implies that, you know, while Conan Doyle obviously didn't believe necessarily you'd find a plateau like the characters find in South America, he thought it was really quite probable you'd find sea serpents or sea serpent-like prehistoric reptiles surviving. Interestingly, not in a zone associated with kind of the primitive like South America so often was, but in, you know, near Greece, which is an unusual and gives it a kind of verisimilitude for the time, but <laughs> it's just kind of random. Um, obviously, the Loch Ness monster later um, associated again. Of a, I suppose Scotland has certain levels of kind of ancient history associated with it. Um, but yes, Conan Doyle is really a, a key player in early in pre-Loch Ness monster plesiosaur cryptozoology. And I just wish there were more sources out there talking about what he thought he'd seen before 1922. Yeah, I, I, I after reading your piece, I went looking <clears throat> through the sources just to see, and it's quite a long time before he thought to say anything about this, which is always a bit, you know, you'd think he would have set, spread the story around while he was promoting The Lost World. If, mm. um, I mean, it seems that he's certainly, a, there's a news article where he's asked about, a, in 1922, asked about a, a Patagonian plesiosaur that was believed to be kind of alive at the time. And that left that, um, that uh, news article predates the kind of earliest source I found of him mentioning it, which is a letter of a natural history museum where he's, also commenting on an admiral who saw what he describes as a kind of wyvern-like chow dog <laughs> off the Isle of Man. And Conan Doyle says, I think I saw something similar, which I think is his plesiosaurus. Um, but again, this is all kind of after the, after the Patagonian plesiosaur, which he clearly he thought, okay, maybe this thing is out there, which implies that he, he thought he saw something, but we don't know really how much what he thought he saw shifted over the years. Although his wife, he claims backs him up in this Daily Express article. Um, uh, and I think in his, his memoirs in 1924. So, you know, it's quite possible that there will be a letter out there somewhere um, from between the Conan Doyle family saying, remember when we saw uh, a plesiosaurus on our honeymoon, <laughs> which I'd love to find. 
You mentioned um, is it Roy Lancaster, who um, I think he's he's mentioned in the Lost World. Um, mm. Challenger is trying to convince Malone at the beginning, and um, that this these dinosaurs might be real. He hands him a book by Lancaster, which I, I, I we're presumed we're presuming is his book, his real book, um, Extinct Animals, which makes me, and and they were Doyle knew knew him and they were friendly to some degree, despite I mean, him being. I don't a, know. Ardent anti-spiritualist, as I as I recall, they certainly became quite antagonistic later on when Condor spiritualism was more of a. I mean, I don't know what to extent they knew each other. There's one letter which is Lancaster writing to Condor while the Lost World's being serialized, saying it's what great fun it is, and kind of he says you should include a giant snake and a toxodon and all these things, and he seems to be enjoying himself. Um, and uh, and obviously, yes, I mean, Condor disagreed with Lancaster in many ways because Lancaster was a really anti anti-paranormal kind of activist in many ways. He was a kind of Richard Dawkins sort of figure um, of the late 19th and early 20th century. But uh, obviously he was also really the most prestigious paleontologist of the time or kind of naturalist of the time in, in Britain. And his book, Extinct Animals, is a children's book, although it's often not kind of described as that, which I think is part of a joke in Conan Doyle's part with the Lost World's kind of um, epigraph about being for children and challenger hands him Extinct animals, as it's you know a monograph and about. Obviously, it's it's not exactly extinct animals handing in, but it does have an image in it which is exactly the same and has the same caption. Um, and I think that's that's part of the, the interesting dynamic when Conan Doyle gives cut out pages from this book, which are actually the pages exist which he gave him. They're in the Bird Collection to Forbes, and Forbes recreates the Stegosaurus, which is what Lank, uh, what Challenger shows Malone at the start picture of Stegosaurus, Forbes basically just copies that exactly. Um, but for the images which are supposed to be Malone drawing things on the lost world, he really transforms the images. So the, the animals are put into kind of much more um, enigmatic positions in the background, in shadow, in kind of mist, and really transforms from, from the kind of blunt, slightly silly looking Stegosaurus from extinct animals to something that's a bit more like, yeah, found found footage, found photograph. <laughs> in general, what is the paleontology like in The Lost World? And what kind of sources did Doyle have access to? Yeah, I mean, he seems to have mostly used extinct animals, which is obviously very um, authoritative from time. Obviously, it's for children, but um, Conan Doyle quite liked reading popular science books. And extinct animals was was widely read, by, according to contemporary reports, by adults. It was based on lectures, which were for children, had been largely attended by adults, which were the newspapers quite <laughs> funny. So, um, you know, that, that was it's clearly not un, um, idiosyncratic. He was also using um, a very kind of lost and now forgotten pioneer in paleontology, Henry Hutchinson, whose book uh, Extinct Monsters, uh, which is from 1892, was revised in 1910. Um, and Conan Doyle got a, a copy of that in his sketches and underlinings in his edition which seem to be by him one of them seems to be a sketch by his daughter kind of with a speech bubble on a, an, a prehistoric toothed bird saying something like don't tell the servants or something along those lines um, but he's basically seems to have used these two books um, and probably other sources of paleoanthropology which he had a kind of a and, and paleoarchaeology which he had a kind of interest in but I mean his The Lost World is uh, relatively unproblematic by the standards of British Edwardian paleontology. I mean, uh, the fact is that Forbes and Conan Doyle were very keen on making the representations of extinct animals in the illustrations scientifically accurate. And this was the complaint of both of them against Roundtree and Strand, who kind of drew kind of just generic monsters with his imagination, which look very impressive, but are not anatomically kind of based on illustrations. Megalosaurus that um, Roundtree draws famously looks nothing like, <laughs> nothing like a dinosaur. 
Um, but the uh, the illustrations of the Lost World, but it was very integral to the authors that they were supposed to be scientifically accurate. I mean, we have uh, very stupid predatory dinosaurs that take a long time to die when they're killed because they, you know, they're so, so moronic and their brain hasn't quite realized it yet, which is um, something that actually Lancaster appraises him for doing in the letter to him. He says, you know, I'm glad you withheld intelligence from the giant dinosaurs. So it's kind of was not perceived as an exaggeration as such. Um, I mean, obviously there's speculation in there, but uh, I think uh, I, I do recall that the Daily Mail and the New York Times complimented it on its scientific accuracy. So clearly it was perceived as being pretty, you know, technically, um, obviously speculative in many ways, but technically actually pretty up to date on paleontology. Hmm. Is there, is there, what does um, The Lost World and the character of Challenger in particular, do they tell us anything about Doyle's attitude towards science in general, being as he was a guy who would go on to, you know, champion things that which didn't always go, to, he, he had a lot of opposition <laughs> from, from the scientific establishment, let's just put it that way. Yeah, I guess Challenger's kind of wish fulfillment in that he combines a kind of bigoted intolerance, which is obviously what Conan Doyle saw a lot of scientists as sort of having, um, you know, a kind of positivistic insurance, assurance that he knew all the facts. He combines this with basically having, discovering constantly wondrous things, you know, one after another. So he manages to, rather than be a kind of a fringe outsider who kind of makes these claims and is, is kind of credulous, he combines um, close-mindedness with wonder. <laughs> and I think that's the dynamic that Conan Doyle appreciates in Challenger, even though obviously he never becomes as popular as Sherlock Holmes. Challenger stories are more in line with Conan Doyle's scientific philosophy, which is that there are wonders out there to be discovered. Um, and obviously he's not a, exactly a mouthpiece for Conan Doyle because he's made fun of, he's, as they say, he's intolerant, he's, he's egotistical, um, and he's kind of larger than life. But I think the fact that he constantly keeps finding kind of hidden realities in the world is really integral to the logic of that character. And those realities, of course, become increasingly, uh, even the next year, you know, the, the poison um, belt, which is about kind of apocalyptic novel where the world flies into a belt of poisoned ether, which puts everyone to sleep, start to have these kind of, yes, apocalyptic trends to them where not only just, you know, the lost world is found, but world's changing inventions where the course of history is forever altered are coming to light and resulting finally in 1925 to 26 into the land of mist where Professor Challenger becomes Conan Doyle's mouthpiece for the scientific veracity of spiritualist phenomena. Mm. Um, intriguingly, the strand serialization uses fake photographs, well, not fake photographs, <laughs> well, fake photographs, but um, photographs purporting to be true um, in correspondence with illustrations and it includes us in their appendix at the end, um, reporting on how basically all the events of the novel are dramatizations of real psychic phenomena. And so there he's really reversing the logic that seemed to be the logic of the lost world, which is that it's a hoax trying to trick you with using the same kind of apparatus to prove um, the veracity of spiritualism and by making Challenger, of course, the most intolerant character believe in something which was being met with what Conan Doyle saw as intolerance is the ultimate coup, really, <laughs> for him to use that character for. It's hard, it's hard not to read The Lost World now and, and see echoes of, in Challenger, of how some contrarian cryptozoologists behave now with this kind of attitude of, you know, they, they are, they, you know, they won't listen to me, but I'm wrong. And, and being Galileo, asked, uh, yes, yeah, yeah. They, <laughs> at, they laughed at Darren, they laughed at Galileo, all the usual effects <laughs> are trotted out. But Challenger is proven right again and again. Um, and yeah, that's how some of these folks still operate, I think, in their heads. I mean, there's a very, very interesting dynamic, um, which I mentioned in the book version of uh, Lost World Chapter, but not the article, 
Uh, I suppose you're familiar with the, the When the World Screamed, one of the mm, last yes. Challenger stories, which of course is about, it's kind of like a proto-Gaia theory where the world is turns out to be real. It's like a giant sea urchin. Yes. Um, and the kind of Challenger creates this kind of very Freudian giant drill that will kind of wake the monster up. This is obviously, seems quite absurd, but in Conan Doyle's travel diary from when he went to South Africa, in the book is published, I think, 1929. Conan Doyle goes, he's quite interested in the geology of South Africa, and he goes on a kind of rant about how he thinks there's unanswered questions in geology, and he talks about how the Earth's strata seem like a slow kind of pulsing breathing. Um, and he's actually almost exactly quoting Challenger's description of the living Earth in the When the World Screamed, which is not to say that Ch Conan Doyle literally believed that the Earth was a giant kind of sea urchin, but it does imply that he thought and suspected, he says, the Newton... Um, of geology has not yet arrived, which is um, actually almost a quote from Alfred Wegener of Continental Drift fame. It said just the same year. I haven't been able to tell whether Conan Doyle was aware of that. But whereas Wegener obviously thought that Continental Drift was going to be the science that would reconnect all the mysteries of geology, Conan Doyle thought there was going to be a much stranger <laughs> connection <laughs> for the, the history of geology and what exactly he thought was, was the case, I don't know. But he clearly suspected there was a paradigm that needed shifting and uh, someone like Challenger uh, would have been able to solve it. So I think you wrote um, during the climactic scene of The Lost World when they're about to show everybody, they're about to prove to everybody that The Lost World is real, the creatures are real, and, and uh, Challenger is about to have his moment in the sun. Um, did you, I think, did I, do I recall that you wrote that um, in the original manuscript, Doyle had actually put in the name of an actual scientist into the crowd? Yeah, this is something that, unfortunately, I didn't take a photo of when I when I saw the manuscript, but it's in my notes. And so, you know, if anyone manages to reread this, um, the, the French published facsimile edition, they can confirm that I didn't completely hallucinate this. I would appreciate it. But they had, the manuscript has Oliver Lodge, um, yes. who was the president of the Society for Psychical Research and the president of the British Association for the Environment of Science, of course, shows the overlap really between um, kind of paranormal communities and mainstream science at the time. It's cr he crosses out the name even in the manuscript. So he obviously didn't consider it very long, but effectively there's this kind of intertextuality, well, not intertextuality, but just a real guy appearing there, known for his interest in psychic phenomena, observing, I think very symbolically, this kind of um, validation of challenges, kind of blockbusting claim, uh, which is really beautiful. It's a shame he cut it because I think he could have got away with it. I mean, I don't yeah. think. Uh, he mentions E. Ray Lancaster. He, has his, yeah. he quotes his book in it. So quite why he removed it, I don't know. I mean, I, I assume that Lodge and Conan Doyle must have been relatively close. So I think Lodge, who was a spiritualist, was slightly more um, cautious in his approach than Conan Doyle. It just, yeah, I, I know from reading Victorian fiction, like um, they bring, like the, there was a small handful of scientists who were vocal yes, about yeah, the support yeah. for and and, and they, for spiritualism, and they get cited again and again and again. And if yeah, it's yeah. Oliver Lodge, it's it's William Crooks. And it's Flammarion as well. Um, yeah, the, and Wallace, yes, Wallace as well. Oh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, Wallace, yes, yeah. they have their checklist, don't they? Which, of course, Conan Doyle uses in The Land of Mist. He's a, uh, you know, he's, he's characters like, oh, well, would, would Crooks be such a fool? And, uh, and uh, yes, uh, they're all kind of dying out. Lodge is the longest lived, I suppose, of all of them. Um, but, yeah, there's a, there's a list of, of mainstream scientists. And then increasingly, in my current project, I'm coming across people who have opinions that are unexpected, I think, in the late 19th, mm. early 20th century that show... I mean, particularly in Germany, which is not my specialty, but there's very strange stuff happening in Germany. I mean, it doesn't go without saying, really, doesn't it? But um, uh, there's, there's beliefs which, even in British science, you wouldn't get away with. But often people will just kind of, you know, have more more confidence in cryptozoology or Atlantis um, than might have been expected. You know, they don't make it their kind of their crusade like Conan Doyle. 
um, but psychical research in the Edwardian period, and particularly in the late 19th century, has a real kind of currency that is in no way crankism, um, or not unambiguously so, particularly the psychical research version rather than the spiritualist version. Obviously, mm. the psychical research version is like the sanitized, kind of um, gentrified version of spiritualism. But I know that, I mean, there's a small number of these folks who were happy being public about it. There were a much larger number of people who were interested or, or believed mm. and, and didn't want to put. And I, I know just from reading about the, the Ghost Club, you know, the secret Ghost Club in London, mm. which had people from high society um, and they didn't want their names out there. And there was a huge scandal at, on one occasion when I believe the guest list was leaked and some of these important <laughs> people were being talked about. So, yeah, it's, it wasn't unusual. But one yeah, so, I mean, constantly you'll get into you'll get jokes about you in kind of periodicals and things when you in short stories. If you get too much, you no, know, like the SPR is always, even though it's it's kind of got a lot of really powerful people in it. It's you know, if you read late Victorian short stories enough, you'll always see kind of jokes about the SPR and their kind of ghosts and things. So it's it's kind of you know something that has an ambiguous social status in this period. Um, that some people want to keep quiet, some people will be quite quite proud of uh, their kind of their superior open mindedness. So to kind of tie things up for the story of the two illustrators for The Lost World. Um, so Forbes was the fellow who Doyle preferred. He wanted his work. He worked with him. He tweaked them. He um, talked him through making them the way he wanted to. Uh, didn't get his way at, at first for the for the British um, Strand publications. But um, things didn't work out so well for, for Forbes um, after this. Yeah, Forbes is... I mean, the documents surviving back are pretty limited. Uh, I'm always kind of looking out for more. But I mean, for a start, he, uh, the, William Ransford, the photographer who actually was friends with Forbes and Forbes had introduced Ransford, Ransford to Conan Doyle to create these fake photographs of the Lost World. Uh, Forbes's wife, who is called Sarah, but was usually called Millie um, informally, Sarah Mildred Forbes, which was to try and, uh, to try and get this straight, Conan Doyle's second wife's sister. So Forbes was Conan Doyle's brother-in-law. So Millie uh, had an affair with Ransford, exactly the chronology I'm not aware of. I'm not sure if it's known. Uh, and did they couldn't divorce Forbes and Millie, uh, but it seems that they did marry as soon as Forbes died in the late 1930s. So there was a, a serious dispute among the illustrators of the lost world going on there, kind of high drama um, and Forbes obviously didn't, didn't, wouldn't accept a divorce, which is, but she, she lived with um, Ransford throughout this time, I think, as I say, they married immediately once he died. Um, and Forbes kind of drops off really uh, after this period. He's very grateful when Conan Doyle chooses him to the illustrations, which suggests his career was already declining a bit. You don't really find much about his life in later decades, about his paintings. Um, and he seems to have been quite a, a disappointed man, really, uh, from what, what survives of him. Um, but yes, uh, <laughs> Ransford, Ransford and, and Millie uh, go on, William Ransford and Millie go on to have um, a marriage uh, and they live until the 40s or 50s, I think. Right. Is there anything in, in the story we haven't covered that you think is worth mentioning? Any element? Um, I think one thing that isn't well known, which is possibly only of interest to people who care about the Lost World, great detail, but I, I imagine that quite a lot of listeners will be that, is that... Um, some of the photos, it's well known that Ransford made a lot of photos, but it seems from the um, letters, I'm not sure there's any way of knowing this outside the letters, that one of the illustrations, sorry, one of the photographs in the book versions, the British book versions, is a photograph of the plateau by Conan Doyle rather than by um, Ransford. So there's two photographs of the plateau. One is 
above trees and another is above kind of stony plain uh, and Conan Doyle created the stony plain one and uh, it wasn't the letters seemed to imply that the editor of a strand didn't think it was good enough to go in a strand as with kind of the Forbes pictures or most of them but the Forbes picture which does go in a strand is the stegosaurus and it's almost presented as deliberately bad so as to look like um, a character's drawing which is what it is in the novel um, but Conan Doyle again restored his photograph to the um the book versions and so there's kind of not just the work of those artists, but also Conan Doyle himself showing again his his dedication to making these words, well, a composite photo of, of a photo of a plateau and a photo of a, a stubbly ground, which I think is part of the novel. There's two approaches to the plateau. There's the jungle approach and there's the kind of um, plain, uh, if I remember rightly. So there's lots of kind of surprises in there and stuff still unknown really about the chronology of a novel and where these uh, some of some of these images have got whether they survived and also I would love to see any anyone else comment on Forbes Forbes illustration from the period because the reviews do not care they are absolutely uninterested in it that I've been able to see <laughs> oh actually there is one there's one and this is my final final Forbes rated point there is one book called Old Time and the Boy which came out in 1921 it's a children's book by a woman called Emily Bray Emily Octavia Bray and it's a, a children's book which is kind of interspersed with pictures of dinosaurs in a kind of way that's only vaguely connected to the story. But Hutchinson's Extinct Monsters is mentioned in the book. It's the favourite book of the boy protagonist. And the illustrations are either accredited redrawings of Hutchinson's illustrations or ones of Forbes's illustrations. So the frontispiece, which is called Pterodactyls in Wonderland, because the book has a kind of Alice in Wonderland theme. It's a redrawing of... Forbes' illustration of the Central Lake and Forbes' illustration of Pterodactyl Swamp. Um, and it's, it was approved, the publication of it was approved by Conan Doyle. So Bray clearly got in touch with Conan Doyle to say this. Uh, and Conan Doyle presumably was only too pleased to have more kind of more use of the Forbes images, which he thought was so important. So that's the strange kind of afterlife of the Forbes images, beyond which I've not really found much apart from they fall into kind of disrepute um, <laughs> in, the, in the following decades. What was the immediate reaction to the Last World Plan publication? Was it popular? Was it a bit? Was it a, a sensation the way King Solomon's Minds had been? Was that, that level of good question around sales? I don't know. I think King Solomon's Minds was you know, one of the best-selling novels ever in the eighteen eighties. I, I don't know whether Conan Doyle's Lost World, when there was so much more competition for adventure novels, yeah. kept quite that momentum. But it was published in the Strand, which was certainly one of the best-selling of the um, illustrated kind of popular magazines, and it was you know. Reviews were almost uniformly pretty good. Um, I don't think, as we can tell from the, the lack of challenge use, that it ever reached Sherlock Holmes levels of fame. Um, and it, I guess the film is, is integral really in turning into what it, it became, which is not to say that it was in any way kind of unpopular. Um, but I think a lot of its reputation has been through due to that film ability. And of course, The Lost World of 1925 is so much more exciting to 20th century audiences than another novel about dinosaurs which however good is is still you know relatively similar to what's been seen whereas the animatronics in the lost world 1925 are truly revolutionary and start to kind of usher in um monster movies uh, obviously followed up by king kong which has got a clear lineage uh, to the lost world i mean the lost world's influence has been kind of incalculable um but i guess we often tend to project back our kind of uh, post Jurassic Park kind of assumption that anything with dinosaurs in must have yes. blown people away when actually it was it was you know it was very popular but it wasn't quite wasn't quite that level of, of fame people mostly would have just preferred more Sherlock Holmes stories I imagine <laughs> something I, I know he was frustrated about at times 
yes, I mean, you can tell from some, oh, Sherlock Holmes stories mostly quite high quality. They keep it up. But obviously Conan Doyle really thought his his kind of great works were the historical romances, the psychic yeah. kind of compendiums, um, some of his more slightly artistic kind of stories for the 1890s. Uh, and Sherlock Holmes was uh, something he, he would really like to have left, left dead in 1894 or whenever he killed Holmes the first time. Tremendous. Listen, I'm going to recommend for listeners Creatures of Another Age. I think anyone listening to the show um, and is interested in the things I am, I think you'll enjoy this. If you like Victoriana, if you like um, uh, paleo creatures, if you like monster stories, I think you'll get, enjoy this. And um, wh- where else can people find your work or what are, you, what are you working on that's coming out soon? Or what would you like people to know about? I mean, uh, this is something I may have mentioned before in the podcast, but um, me and uh, Edward Guimont are working on a a special issue of a journal, uh, a journal interdisciplinary science reviews. <laughs> and so while this is, is, a, is a bit of an ask, obviously, if you're interested in the subject of conceptualizing heterodox paleoscience, which is effectively our way of kind of talking about cryptozoology, creationism, lost world fiction, um, we're accepting abstracts for this special issue, which uh, we'd be very happy to hear from literary scholars, paleontologists, um, geologists, geophysicists, archaeologists, you know, anyone who has a a uh, perspective on this subject of, I guess, fringe or borderline interpretations of, of deep history um, or biblical archaeology and geology, um, you know, we'd be very happy to hear from that um, from anyone. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's a you know, it's a it's a slightly slightly less um, uh, fun perhaps than reading a, a lost world novel. But hopefully, if people have that interest, we'd we'll be happy to hear from you. Yeah, yeah, no, we have a lot of listeners who, you know, write um, in some of those fields as well. So that'd be amazing. Listen, thank you. Thank you so much. This has been tremendous. I really enjoyed it. And that's it for this episode, folks. Hope you enjoyed that. My apologies if some of my audio wasn't always as good as it might be. I think a little something might have gone wrong during the recording. I've tinkered with the audio to see how much I can save. And really, I think the conversation was worth it. My beer for this episode, if you were wondering, is Wildfire Hoppy Red Ale from the Wicklow Wolf Brewing Company. And uh, I can say this red ale is something of a mysterious beast all of its own, at least around here, where it's a little bit hard to get a hold of where I'm living anyway, this far south. So what can you do? You can get in touch over on Twitter where we are at Strange Ireland or on Instagram where I'm, what am I? Irish underscore cryptid underscore dude. And as always, you can help out the show if you like over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide Atlantic. Now, as for me, I, I have left some trail cameras strapped to trees in the woods around the cabin looking to see if there are any mysterious creatures living around here being as I've had some footprints and some weird sounds heard at night. So whether those be extant living dinosaurs or something else weird, uh, wish me luck as I go off to check those trail cameras. So hope you've enjoyed that, folks. And as always, until next time, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body